and you're asking a model to come up with some synthesized view of the world. And by definition, that data that you're training it with is noisy. It's, it's on this side, it's on that side, it's up here, it's down there, and you have to come to some sort of um, middle point and it ends up being a real abstraction of, of the reality. And so the nuance that exists on the web is completely wiped away and any diversity that you were hoping for is gone. And, and you know where they converge is the area that's statistically significant in the data. So those that are overrepresented already, those that are mainstream are the voices that end up being reproduced. hottest topics out there is the rise of artificial intelligence and in particular of generative AI tools such as ChatGPT. Suddenly machines can pass MBA exams, write memos for you, create computer codes, and much, much more. At the same time, the conversation around the potential harms, and in particular the inequities that can be created by such technologies, is also accelerating. How can we take advantage of all these incredible things that it can do without suffering from its potential harms? And is that even possible? Welcome to episode six of Designing for Everyone, a podcast by the Institute for Gender and the Economy, or GATE. I'm Sarah Kaplan, she, her pronouns, and a professor of strategic management at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management, founding director of GATE, and your podcast host. In this seven-part limited series, we're featuring a high-impact set of conversations we had in April 2023 at our Gender Analytics Possibilities Conference. To get into a discussion on AI and inequality, we invited three experts. Annie Veillette is a partner at PwC and leads their AI and intelligent automation offerings. She brings extensive experience in the planning and execution of complex advanced analytics and automation solutions. Her experience includes analytics transformations from the identification of business drivers to implementing and scaling capabilities, process automation with embedded AI components, and customer segmentation using behavioral traits. Annie co-led the development of PwC's Global Responsible AI Toolkit and was recognized as one of the top 30 influential women advancing AI in Montreal. Alison Cohen is Senior Applied AI Projects Manager at Mila, a community of scientists and interdisciplinary teams committed to advancing artificial intelligence for the benefit of all. In this role, Alison works closely with AI researchers, social science experts, and external partners to professionalize and deploy socially beneficial AI projects, including a misogyny detection and correction tool, an application that can identify online activity related to human trafficking, and an agricultural analytics tool to support sustainable practices among smallholder farmers in Rwanda. She was on the Inspired Minds Top 50 Influential Women in AI list and was the runner-up for the 2022 Women in AI Leader of the Year Award. And their conversation was moderated by Brian King, who is a research director at Borealis AI, a research center created by Royal Bank of Canada and an adjunct professor in data science at the Rotman School. At Borealis, he leads the incubator program building out innovative AI-enabled products and capabilities for the financial services industry. At Rotman, he plays a key role in shaping data science's education and research through his work with the TD Management Data and Analytics Lab and the Master of Management Analytics Program. Brian's primary professional focus resolves around building scalable AI and machine learning systems to provide robust solutions to core business problems. They discussed important ways that AI potential can be achieved without reinforcing inequalities. 
So I thought where we start with this is to just talk a little bit some of the projects you've been working on, which is very relevant to the conference. Uh, maybe we'll start with you, Annie. I know you co-led the development of PwC's uh, Global Responsible AI Toolkit. Can you maybe talk about how the impact's been to your customers and maybe some of the business that it's led to? Uh, sure, uh, absolutely. So first, before I get into the impact, just give you guys a brief overview of what that uh, toolkit really uh, comprises of. So there's for us, there's four big modules or four pillars, if you will. Um, the first being around what we call strategy, but that also includes, uh, you know, ethics, regulations and things like that. So they're very, very important. So the strategic pillar, there's the uh, control pillar. This is more around governance and making sure that beyond the data scientists who should get involved in the governance of these AI uh, models. We have a pillar that's focused on what we call really the responsible cases. So testing for biases, interpretability, uh, those kinds of measures that we do. And then the last pillar uh, is, and last, not least, because I'll say this is a pillar that often a lot of our, our clients and uh, some of our internal projects as well will, will lack in uh, maturity. And it's, it's more around what we call core operations. So managing um, long-term and, and really monitoring the models and the AI. So with that in mind, what I wanted to just uh, give you guys a highlight is how holistic the toolkit really is. And what that means is that there's lots and lots of stakeholders involved in, you know, again, the design, the management, the control, the governance of AI. And really what that helps do is bring more people to the table to have the conversations. And also, of course, we need to educate them. They need to learn. They need to get invested. Because now they share the accountability. So what I found that really had as an impact for a lot of the people who's, who really dove in with us and, and started using it uh, was lots more uh, AI application ideas. So applied AI became a much broader group of people that had uh, those, those that interest and in pushing all the way from the top. So one of our recent clients, of course, the generative AI uh, buzz has helped them as well. But before even that, we found that the more people got educated and comfortable that these types of machines can be managed, um, the more openness there was. So, you know, again, the client, just going back to that example, right now, um, it's coming all the way from the CEO saying, like, we must, you know, use this, this uh, technology. We must use this new uh, machine that got developed for us and and it's really coming from the top so again broadening the education broadening the um the, the uh, accountability is the biggest i think impact that i've seen when it comes to um you know using that toolkit and bringing that holistic perspective when it comes to it yeah and that's really cool because one of the things that i've seen is that people are just too narrowly focused on interpretability or bias or fairness whereas i think this holistic view is really kind of one of the big things that it sounds like it's really having a big impact there. Um, Allison, maybe let's turn to you. Uh, I know that uh, you've been working on a lot of AI projects that are having positive social impact. And one of the things we talked about before was a mis misogyny uh, detection and correction uh, AI tool. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about it and, and some of the things that it brings uh, over the existing work out there. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, I just want to say it's a real honor to be here with all of you today. This is such an important topic and uh, just excited to be drawing attention to some of these themes. 
Um, so yes, that's right, Brian. I'm working on a portfolio of AI for social good projects. And one of those projects is highly aligned with today's theme. Um, it's a project called Biasly. It's a natural language processing tool. And for those who don't know, natural language processing is sort of a suite of algorithms that can be used on natural language, can understand the way that humans communicate with each other in ways that we find relevant. Um, so it's a natural language processing tool that can actually detect and educate users about the presence of misogyny in written text. And just for the sake of defining our terms, although I know everyone in this room knows what misogyny means, we've had to be very intentional about not just using jargon in this space, but also being very um, clear about what we mean when we use these terms. So our definition of misogyny is anything that is um, really prejudiced, uh, exhibits hatred or any other type of discrimination against women or anything female associated by virtue of belonging to the category of women. And um, I think that, you know, misogyny can sometimes be interpreted in a whole bunch of different ways, but I was recently reading Chimamanda Ngozi Adot Ngozi Adichie's book called How to Raise a Feminist. And she spoke about how um, if you're criticizing equality in women that you wouldn't criticize in men, you're not criticizing that quality, you're criticizing the woman. Um, and that's really where the misogyny element comes in. And the models that are on the market today um, have luckily given space for plenty of opportunity for us to make a meaningful impact. And that's both because we don't necessarily see a lot of tools like this, but also because the tools that have been developed in this space are problematic, <laughs> to say the least. And that's because you know you can sort of deconstruct an AI model in a number of ways. One is by looking at the data that was used to train those models. Um, when it comes to misogyny detection, very often people use um, models that, uh, well, they use data that comes from social media. And quite often social media data is very um, hyper, aggressive against women. And what we know is that just as problematic as that can be, um, so is more subtle forms that misogyny can come in. So um, a focus for ours has, for us has been, how do we find data sets that are more representative of the way that misogyny can be expressed, um, both in overt ways and in more subtle ways as well. Um, another, element of common models in this space is that they look at keywords as signifiers for misogyny. And what we know is that misogyny is context specific. It's not, you're not gonna just identify it with the use of a word. In fact, if a woman uses a certain word with another woman, that can actually be reclaimed language. It's not necessarily misogynistic. Um, and then finally, a lot of the tools being developed, research being done is exclusively among computer scientists, as opposed to engaging multidisciplinary experts in the space. Um, and you know, a lot of the things I've just commented on have come from domain experts that I'm working with. So we're really looking to change the narrative of how this work is being done by changing the data sets that we're using, by changing the nature of the models we're working with, and even changing how the process is being done by virtue of the people we're pulling in. We're working both with a linguist and a gender studies expert in addition to computer scientists.
Oh, very cool. And I really like this multidisciplinary aspect, and I think we're going to try to come back to that. But uh, first, something that you referenced and uh, and Annie as well is really these new generative models. I think you know everyone's probably heard of ChatGPT. There's a lot of surface area for maybe things that it could do well, and you know things that it could not uh, do not so well. So, uh, kind of, what's your what's your take on this, especially as it relates to uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and some of the topics we're here to talk about today? Um, you know, Allison, why don't you start, and then Annie, please feel free to jump in. Sure, thank you. Um, so. In the interest of defining our terms, maybe I'll just quickly uh, define generative AI. Um, generative AI is any type of AI tool that can create content, whether that's written, oral, or visual. Um, so as an example, and this, these are odd examples, keep in mind, but this is sort of giving you a sense of how odd this technology can be. You can um, essentially generate this content using only a prompt. So you give it uh, an idea of what it is you're looking for, and it can generate the type of output that, that you'd like. You can type in anything from, you know, create an image of a dog eating my homework in the style of Van Gogh, to write a sick note to my teacher in the form of Shakespeare. Uh, and I don't know why those examples <laughs> came to mind. I promise I'm not in high school looking to get out of <laughs> class. Um, but there's this real breadth to what these models can do, and that's because they've been trained on ridiculous amounts of data. None of that data is labeled. They just shove a stupid amount of data into models that are um, that end up having a really robust mental model of the world. You, you can get some insight into how comprehensive a model is by looking at the number of parameters it has. And there are billions of parameters that these models end up um, developing by virtue of all the data that it's learning on. And, and these parameters are sort of its mental model of the world. And it means that it can generalize and, and operate in all sorts of different contexts. Um, and yeah, do you want to? I'll just add, and the other thing that maybe folks don't realize is that if there are gaps, even in this insane amount of data, it can even create its own synthetic data to kind of fill in those gaps. So it can create its own data to train itself as to what it's going to produce. So just to, again, show how complex this is and, and um, yeah, how, how hard it is after to be able to explain how this machine came up with whatever content it produced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I, there's so many risks when it comes to this technology, one of it being you don't know where it even got some of this information from, or even if it is factual. Um, a lot of generative models have been accused of, uh, or do hallucinate, which means coming up with random, you know, pseudo facts that can create all sorts of misinformation. Um, but then there's risks associated with, you know, giving irresponsible answers, no citing of sources, no accountability. If you put any sort of data in there, it can be used to further train those models. So don't tell it anything you wouldn't want it sharing with billions of people. Um, <laughs> yeah, so those are some of the limitations. Go ahead. Uh, absolutely. So, so yeah. So basically, what we touched on, I think, what you need to be careful of is kind of all of those risks. The, of course, the upside of it, I think, why it's gaining some some uh, momentum is how fast and how powerful it is 
um, that it can create at least a first draft. And that's what we've seen a lot of um, organizations use the outcome of generative AI these days is they'll use it as a first draft. But you must be aware that it's going to come out as a first draft. So it's 80% ready. Uh, we have some folks that are using it just to answer questions on their internal policies or in their internal guidelines or the investment guidelines and things like that. So you'll get an answer. It's about 80% complete most of the time. And then you, as a human, can kind of review, uh, validate, because as we've mentioned, we, we're not 100% sure how it came up with uh, with the answer that came up. But you'll you'll get a really great start to whatever you're trying to accomplish. So it's, if these are things that are going to consider less risky for your organization, and it's more just being efficient, it's a really interesting uh, tool. When you get into certain use cases, though, that it can make decisions for people, I think this is where the, the diversity and the biases and all of that becomes hyper um, concerning, I think, for, for a lot of us. So if it's making a decision whether somebody should get hired or not, whether you should get approved or declined for a loan, whether these types of um, recommendations from the machine personally makes me very, as excited as I am about the broader use of the technology, those use cases certainly make me quite nervous. Yeah, there, I think that's a, a very apt characterization of some of the risks. Um, we don't know how it's making its decisions. It's not at all humble in terms of how confident it was in, in making its decision or giving you any sort of fact that you're asking for. Um, but also from an equity, diversity, and inclusion standpoint, there was an amazing article in The New Yorker written by Ted Chang, I believe, um, called ChatGPT is a blurry JPEG of the web. And he talked about how, and this is a really helpful way of sort of formulating, at least personally, some of my thoughts on, on ChatGPT. It's you're taking data that's equal parts CNN and Breitbart and you're asking a model to come up with some synthesized view of the world. And by definition, that data that you're training it with is noisy. It's, it's on this side, it's on that side, it's up here, it's down there, and you have to come to some sort of um, middle point and it ends up being a real abstraction of, of the reality. And so the nuance that exists on the web is completely wiped away and any diversity that you were hoping for is gone. And, and you know, where they converge is the area that's statistically significant in the data. So those that are overrepresented already, those that are mainstream are the voices that end up being reproduced. Um, and then from a content developer standpoint, all of the data that's taken, no consent, no recognition, and no compensation. Um, and the implications of that can be quite significant from an, from an inclusion standpoint and from an equity standpoint as well. Yeah, actually, you brought up a really good point. Uh, modern AI is really powered by this massive data, typically pulled from the internet. And uh, you mentioned that there are a lot of biases. The internet is not necessarily representative of the population and or kind of the groups that we want to include. So this actually plays into one of the questions the audience had about um, because it's trained on this data, it introduces a lot of unconscious bias that we don't quite know why it's there. And what are some of the ways that we can deal with this and uh, make sure that these systems can generate output that uh, is not toxic or, or you know, doesn't introduce a lot of negative things that we wouldn't want? 
Anyway, anyone, anyway, go ahead. Okay, I can start. So, so of course, there is some some tests, some statistical tests that you can do and you can run. Um, and I think the the sometimes misconception is that we try to remove bias. It's more that we try to inject fairness, right? Because there's always going to be some biases, but we need to understand what what are we considering fair as an outcome for this machine. So we we talk a lot about the machine, but for us or for me, anyways, it always comes down what's the problem we're trying to solve with it. So with a fair outcome, what does that mean? And then you go from there. From a data perspective, um, again, once you understand where you want to land statistically to be what we consider fair, you can use the data that you already have. And I, I touched on the synthetic data, so the creating of fake data. We can also compensate by creating additional synthetic data to um, you know where there may be gaps, right? Where we feel like, we should be at a 50-50 gendered uh, type team in this organization, but we're not. Uh, and there's maybe, you know, a, a, an even smaller segment within the, the, the female um, group that we want to represent that we don't even have a small sample right now. Let's create at least a version of it. And then hopefully it grows naturally and doesn't need to be synthetic data with time. So, so there's a few techniques like that that we can do. Uh, but it all comes down to, to statistics. So if you take the time to do it, you can make sure that um, maybe not on the generative side, but on the I'm going to call it more classical AI controlled environment, you can, you can make sure that you're testing and, and validating and where there are gaps, take the time to create the synthetic data to kind of compensate for those gaps. Yeah, and I would also add that with generative AI, which is all prompt-based, the only insight that you have into how the tool is going to perform is by testing it and testing it on representative examples. And this is really where the democratization of AI comes in because anyone could test it. You know, you don't need a computer science degree to be able to uh, figure out what sort of examples would be problematic, what examples would be interesting, and then, you know, report that back to computer scientists who can then sort of engineer uh, those types of findings back into the model. So there's this really real capacity to iterate on the way that the model is working and iterate in a way that includes domain experts um, who don't necessarily have that, that insight on the computer science side. So to some extent, there, I, I think that generative AI could be a really interesting development in the space of responsible AI, but there hasn't been enough research precedent, best practice yet, to really formalize what that process should look like. So I'm hoping that people um, like you will be able to <laughs> create more um, metrics and toolkits so that people can do this well as they're leveraging these APIs, which are so easily accessible now to the population. Challenge accepted. <laughs> and uh, you brought up a good point, and uh, it comes back to this idea of uh, interdisciplinary uh, work that we need to do. And it kind of shows up in your background, Allison, you know, coming from the Monk School, originally like uh, trainings in international development, then moving on to kind of into AI. And so you've been doing a lot of work with teams and interdisciplinary problems in this space. Can you describe not just like having these like diverse teams for the sake of having diverse teams, like how has it actually helped drive some of the outcomes that you want and you know, what are some of the benefits that you see and uh, think about? Love this question, thank you. I swear I didn't plant it myself. Um, so when I talk about, I guess, AI and the need for multidisciplinary engagement, 
what I often use to illustrate this point is, um, I guess, so AI is commonly referred to as a tool and I staunchly oppose that belief um, because when you describe something as a tool, you make it sound really abstract, like very scientific, like it would exist whether humans are here or not. Um, and, you know, when it comes to human-made tools, I, I really think there's this continuum, tools that are really, you know, removed from anthropological, sociological, psychological um, values and beliefs, and then tools that are incredibly revealing about humanity. So on the stripped down, low dimensional side, I give you the example of a wrench, for example. You, you don't necessarily need to know much about human psychology or sociology to be able to use a wrench or understand a, how a wrench would be used. Um, although I'm not exactly sure on how to use a wrench. But <laughs> on the other side of the spectrum, you have really complex human-made artifacts like art. And I mean, as, as anyone who studied art would know, there's so much context that you need in order to interpret what you're looking at. And there's so much context that goes into an artist's de desire to even create that in the first place. And so on this continuum, and I hope you're bearing with me, but let me know if you're not, um, I think applied AI projects are actually a lot closer to art in terms of being this artifact of humanity that contains psychological um, elements that you know is so informed by our economy and by our society in terms of the people that are sitting at the table, in terms of how they're funded, in terms of what projects are important, uh, in terms of how they collect their data, in terms of the responsible AI commitment. Um, so all this to say is the tools that we're developing are not agnostic to our reality. And if we want to create tools that are high impact on the ground, we need to make sure that that reality is captured in the design and development process. And that reality can't be captured by computer scientists alone. They have to be working with people on the ground, with people coming from different disciplinary backgrounds. Um, to give you an example, I'm working on a human trafficking detection tool. And for the first couple of years, it was developed solely with computer scientists. And then we introduced criminologists, lawyers, ethicists, and survivors of human trafficking. And it completely changed the nature of what we were doing. Um, the data we were paying attention to, how we aggregated it, how we ran it through our models, what our models are looking for, and, and our deployment strategy. So um, I, I think multidisciplinary is the difference between having a great project in theory and then having a meaningful project in practice. Yeah, and based on my experience working with technologists, this is something they often forget. And I think this is something we, we definitely need to include. Now, Annie, you have your kind of uh, own experiences. And one of the things that um, you mentioned before is that when you joined, the team you had was uh, of 100 or so was 14% uh, women. And then uh, now it's closer to being uh, even around 40%. And you've said that this explicitly has helped uh, the, the models that you make be more fair and less biased. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about how that actually has produced better results having a more diverse team? 
absolutely. And, and, uh, I'm going to say 40% and growing, we're trying to, to reach equality. You know, it, it does make a huge difference. And I think I was mentioned it, right? Like it's that diversity of thinking. It's been, uh, um, increasing the diversity of course in the gender, but also in the backgrounds, right? We have folks that on our team that have a PG in music theory. We have people that have all kinds of backgrounds now, um, most of them are obviously very passionate about technology, but but still um, now when we're doing those first steps of the designing and the selections of the types of data we should consider to solve the business problems, and I'm mentioning this again, for us, if we're, if we're going to train, because we, we work more for, for organizations, if we're going to train and, and uh, work on a model, it's for a specific business problem. So if you take the group of people that needs to look at the business problem, it's rarely just one type of profile that will come to the best, more complete solution, um, both for the performance of the results, but of course, to be more fair and have, uh, again, considered a variety of different angles. So, you know, if I, if I go back to one um, specific example, we were working with, uh, with a, an organization and it was a pretty simple business problem in the sense like we're trying to build a model that is going to predict or, or recommend where we should uh, do the next subway station or metro station, depending on which city you're in, uh, for for the you know for the communities. And you know the first draft of the design had a narrow set of data, and it had you know some pretty you know fundamental uh, recommendation on which methods we should use, whether we use uh, NLP machine learning, et cetera. But then when we added additional people uh, around the table to think through the business problem, we added so many other data sets to, to your point, which ones were we actually paying attention? We went more on the behavioral side of things. We went more on, um, you know, again, other sources of data that were not as important in the, the first consideration in the first design. So with that diversity in the team, even the data scientist team, I'm going to call it, it improves. And if you can go above that and have an even more holistic type of team solving that problem, uh, love the idea of bringing like lawyers, ethicists, wh whoever can help bring a point of view to that business problem should be around the table. And that's going to help, frankly, with the performance of the machine itself, making sure it's really giving you the result to solve your problem in a more efficient manner. So, yeah, and that's really cool. And I, I think that, uh, having that diverse team sounds like it really helps to develop the final solution. But I, I guess like one of the things that we also need to focus on, and, and, and I'm curious to see what uh, you, you think about it, is during the formative years, during education, you know, as I mentioned, a lot of technologists I work for are really with, are really just thinking about the technology problem, not the different perspectives, uh, whether they be from gender or backgrounds or, or cultural. Um, so do you have any thoughts about how we can improve those perspectives, especially with maybe some traditionally some of these technologists who haven't really been thinking about uh, uh, this topic? Um, yes, I, I was actually shocked to find out that you can graduate with a master's in computer science without having ever taken a course in ethics, which <laughs> is so terrifying <laughs> considering the scale of this of the deployment of these tools and just how intimate they can be in our lives i think what's also wild to think about is that ethics is really the training on how to navigate gray areas and gray areas exist all over the ai 
life cycle. Um, even when it comes to evaluation, the trade-off between precision and recall when you're looking at F1 scores, it's they're, they're everywhere. So I think it, it's gaining traction is an important area for computer science to be computer scientists to be learning about, especially with all the reputational damage uh, that can be caused when the machine learning tools don't have the intended impact in practice and can, in fact, end up hurting a whole host of communities. Um, so hopefully the importance of this is growing, but it's growing slowly because the thing that's growing faster is the economic, the insane economic returns that some of these tools can have. You can look at OpenAI. They've gotten investments on the order of billions from Microsoft. I mean, there's also a definite incentive to move as fast as you can, deploy as quickly as possible, break whatever you need to break, even if that's trust with local communities. Um, so I think we would be remiss if we didn't address this very strong financial incentive that's getting people to move in a way that's not conducive to trust building um, or to an ethical reflection, which takes a long time to do. Um, so an antidote to that that we're focusing on at Mila, which is where I work, is um, we have what's called TRAIL, which is an education uh, program for our researchers. There are around a thousand uh, affiliated academics with Mila, and we're running them through this supplemental ethics program to teach them about how to incorporate some of these reflections in their work. Um, but I think there needs to be a real structural focus on how does all this money influence the way that technology gets built and the speed at which it gets built and how irrelevant questions of ethics and trust building become because of that, which I think is a big problem. Absolutely. And if I can build on that, because, you know, for us, we, we hear a lot um, it's like privacy by design, right? Like, so when you're designing, you consider the privacy from the very beginning of the process. So similarly, maybe it's ethics by design. So things like practicing that kind of, um, you know, method, I think is is really missing today in, in a lot of the education. Uh, we try to compensate for it in, in, in the real world and add uh, supplemental trainings, but certainly something that we could start much earlier to have kind of that knee-jerk reaction from the get-go, need to think about, okay, I'm a, I work in data. Of course, I'm gonna use data and it's gonna have some results. So privacy, ethics, there's a bunch of different aspects that you need to think about early during the design phase. That's one of it, part of it. The other thing that we've been doing kind of that in that supplemental, you know, uh, training in, in, uh, in the office for us, for uh, our technical folks, but also our business folks is what we, we called it agile BXT. But really what this is, is Again, at the design stage, we bring a bunch of different stakeholders and it kind of goes with your multidisciplinary angle. And we try to say like, you're coming in to represent like the techs, like the CTOs of the world. You're coming in to represent the CFO. You're... So trying to really, again, have a multitude of perspectives and we build the designs like that. So it's no longer just three mathematicians going in a room trying to design the most performant machine. It's really, okay, multidisciplinary, we're all looking at a different angle. And then with the results of that, you can go apply the math. It's kind of uh, another type of training that we've been um, trying to, to complement what we've seen in the education system. Um, of course, I'll, I'll do a shout out to if we can find ways to, to encourage even more women to go into the more technical fields. Uh, I think that will help as well ind indirectly. But pure training, I think those are two ways of um, 
complementing or augmenting what's already taught. Yeah, that's great. And uh, this actually relates to a couple of questions that uh, people have uh, submitted. One is about encouraging more of this collaboration across stakeholders is maybe something to help uh, remedy this problem. But uh, kind of on top of that, maybe I'll add another question I was asking is, is really regulation some of the answer to this? And I'd love to get your opinions on what you think. So I think, yes. <laughs> um, I think, again, as we're seeing, you know, there's such financial incentive for me, people to move as fast as possible. And so unless you have some sort of regulation, at least mandating a level of ethics or compliance with um, established regulatory procedures or standards, you're not going to have the desire to, to staff teams more comprehensively, um, especially because it really does slow the process down to have di divergent viewpoints. Um, I've been developing this bias detection tool for the last two years, and it's quite likely it'll continue to take um, at least another year if we're gonna make a, a functioning prototype. And I'm sure that, again, there's companies want to do the best that they can get away with. I don't think they want to do the best they can possibly do. And so in order for us to see the types of products that are going to truly benefit our societies, I think that's going to come from regulation, uh, almost insisting on that kind of process. Yeah, I concur, right? I, I think, yeah, and we... For those who who are a bit in the world, like there's a bill C27 coming. We think in 2025. Some groups are trying to to pressure to um, you know speed that up. Um, we certainly uh, appreciate. I think anybody working in this field, what the last thing we would want is for folks to try to go too fast and cause accidents, if I could call it that, in this world, and then um, have everybody be overly scared of. I think this fabulous technology, right? Like, so I think yes, regulations, because it's going to keep everybody safe. And there are ways to use um, these techniques to be in a safe way, in a fair way, um, if we take that time. But it does cost a little bit more money to do it right. So with when we go with the organizations who say like, to be compliant, you need to do X, Y, Z, typically the, the budgets get uh, freed up. If it's just because it's the right thing to do, there's a little bit, a lot more, I would say, um, you know, friction to go get the the budgets required to do that more holistic view. Because it's not only at the, we've talked a lot about design recently, but it's also the governance after, right? And and the controls and the maintenance at the end, like, because models can shift with time. So it's not only how we're, did you design it, but are you monitoring to make sure it's still doing what it's meant to be doing to, again, solve that pro business problem? So multitudes of reasons why I also um, would appreciate and uh, applaud any uh, acceleration in some of these uh, bills being passed to, to add regulations. Great. Uh, so we have a bit of time. I'm going to turn to some of the questions from the audience. Uh, this is one uh, that came up. You think current models can detect dog whistles, misogyny, racism, and transphobia, et cetera, given that they're so context-specific and designed to be hidden? So this is, I guess, maybe more adversarial from the human point of view? This is a great question. And um, 
maybe in case anyone, you know, I wouldn't have known what a dog whistle was unless I was working on this project. So I think the question is sort of asking, what about the language that's meant to go undetected? Um, when, you know, people are communicating with some sort of in-group and trying to signify whether it's hatred, bigotry, misogyny. Um, this is a real problem and it's a real limitation of our tool. Um, and I think this sort of speaks to all of the possible oversights that a tool like the one I'm developing could have. Um, when it comes to ethical AI, of course, a big part of it is the tool itself and how it functions. But you also have to be very clear in the deployment of your tool what its limitations are and making sure that users are using it as intended. Um, the goal with the tool that we're developing now is to help people see what is obvious to a gender studies or linguistics expert, not necessarily to someone who specializes in dog whistles. Um, and so, you know, you really want to make sure that the impact that you can have isn't overshadowed by all of its limitations, but you are humble in the application of your tool. And so it's only used in the way that, that you're intending it and the way that you've trained it to operate. Um, but no, we will not, unfortunately, at this stage in the game, we will not be able to identify um, encoded language because, you know, Annie, as you mentioned, these things change over time. If our tool could detect dog whistles, those would no longer be the dog whistles and there'd be new dog whistles. And so then you have to consider the model drift question. So um, yeah, I, I think it's important, especially as you're using AI tools to really think about the scope in which they should be responsibly applied and the scope in which they shouldn't be. Great. Um... Maybe the next one here is, uh, so we talked about how a lot of these modern models are built around noisy data, usually scraped from the web. Uh, is there an effort to try to filter down the data set so that you can really get it to a place where it's representative, fair, et cetera, and then train a model on that? Is, is that even feasible from the point of view of getting enough data, clean data to do that? Maybe, I, I would say absolutely, right? And that's where, and there's different tech, that's why I mentioned at the design stage, there's different techniques. So if you're going to train a model that's going to make a decision, I use the example where you're going to get approved or declined for a loan, you probably want um, a static set of data that you've really cleansed, that you've prepared, that everybody feels is a fair representation of um, of. of of your audience, basically for the for the whatever the machine's going to decide. So you spend that time preparing that set set of data to train that model, and then you don't allow the model to continue learning on the human noise that can get created by new decisions being made by folks on the teams, etc. So you can absolutely have some AI models that are in a controlled setting. And for those kind of more sensitive decisions, it's still probably the, um, the safest way to do it. There are ways to put guardrails on self-learning machines, but you, you are more at risk for the additional noise. And noise comes from the humans creating more data, and we all know that humans are very biased. <laughs> so so if, you, if you add that or you allow that, you have to understand that you are most likely then... Um, at risk of including additional uh, biased data, if I could call it that. Yeah, I, I would 
I completely agree. And I would add that another way that human bias gets implanted into the data is with the data labeling. So when you're doing data labeling, also called annotations, you have you hire people to pretty much give the data that you're interested in a label of, of a certain type. And a lot of uh, AI projects are actually using really tricky uh, software to do this annotation. For example, a lot of computer scientists are using platforms like uh, Amazon's Mechanical Turk, where you have annotators that are not being properly paid, that are not being incentivized to provide the most high quality label to your data, um, that are incentivized to move as quickly as possible to get paid as much as possible. And the labor conditions are, are obviously just very questionable. Um, so I think even when, even though uh, labeled data is considered to be a bit of a gold standard. You even have to look under the hood of what that gold standard labeled data set is because in some cases it can be data labelers who are, you know, providing annotation on English language documents, for example, and they may, English may not be their first language, or they don't care to read an entire document for 10 cents <laughs> for a 10 cent annotation. Um, so, you know, really getting into the politics around annotation and the biases that that can introduce is also a really important aspect of understanding the quality of a data set. Okay. And so uh, we only have a couple of minutes left, but I, I thought this question was really good. Uh, is there a place we think AI shouldn't venture into? You know, we talked about AI art and, you know, stealing, stealing some of the the IP from you know humans, um, maybe very quickly, both of you, you could uh, give your viewpoint on it. For me, again, it's if if well governed, if done well, and if done in a a way that we are willing to consider uh, fairness from all the way from the design to the monitoring. I think this technology can enhance and um, really improve a lot of our lives, frankly. So there's not an absolute. Um, you know, don't go there and be um, collaborating. And for me, it's all, I'll add one thing though. This is always a collaboration between the human and the machine, right? So it's never a situation, even for the most mundane things, I don't particularly like to say like, let it all be handled by machines and the humans will do something else. So in a safe environment, I'm up for um, at least consideration. And with that that diverse team, if there's really a, a a risk that we feel we can't handle, that's when I would pass on it. But before that, um, I say let's look at it and and see if we can if we can have a safe way to do it. Yeah, I think that that's a view of many people. I think you know there's so much potential here, and no one wants to preemptively say, oh no, AI should never go there because maybe the impact can be significant and meaningful. Um, but I think we need to focus on who has a say in determining whether or not the technology should be deployed there. And again, the focus should be the communities it's being, it's affecting. That conversation stimulated a lot of ideas for me. I was particularly drawn to the idea that you need interdisciplinary teams, including social scientists and not just computer scientists, to design equitable AI. And you need to design with the risk of inequalities in mind at all times. 
Edgate, we've been thinking about these issues for a while now, and we'll post a couple of resources for you that should take the conversation further. Thank you for listening to this special edition Gate Audio Production podcast on Designing for Everyone. If you haven't listened to them already, I hope you will check out the other six episodes in this limited edition series and other Gate Audio podcasts, including our signature podcast, Busted, where we bust common myths about gender and other forms of inequality. Just search for Institute for Gender and the Economy where you get your podcasts. Of course, you can help us get the word out by liking and following the podcast and telling your friends. We are nowhere without our community of listeners. If you want to keep learning, head to our website at genderanalytics.org, where you can discover our online course offerings and much more. This podcast was produced by me, Sarah Kaplan, and edited by Ian Gormley. We are grateful for support from the Rotman School's TD Management and Data Analytics Lab, who co-hosted the Gender Analytics Possibilities Conference with Gate. See you next time.